Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the 36th most Bible-minded city in the U.S., according to a recent Barna study. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and joining me here in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello, everybody, and Happy Lunar New Year to all our Asian friends and listeners. That's right. Uh, Teen Pop Sensation, Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Greetings. Coming up in this episode, because you demanded it... A discussion on hermeneutics. Woo! <laughs> Who's Herman? I thought you were going to say, because you demanded it, an episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually true. Um, so that's coming up in Counter Apologetics. Also, a God Thinks Like You that really lives up to that title. Uh, some polyatheism and a well-deserved shitlist entry. But first, some news items. Now, as I mentioned at the top... There's a new Barna study out on the most Bible-minded cities in the U.S., in which Grand Rapids, Michigan, ranked 36th out of 97 cities polled. 36, 36, <laughs> yeah. Now, they had to cheat a little bit for Grand Rapids, yes, though. Yes, they didn't. Uh, that's the thing. They didn't just take the figures from Grand Rapids. They also included in figures from Battle Creek. Serial City. And Kalamazoo, Michigan. Were they theologically biased essay questions? Now, I'm wondering if that was um, because obviously 96 cities, this is not every city in the country. This is um, large cities. I wonder if that was just to get Grand Rapids into the population was requirements? Was that to nudge us into the higher population? But I imagine, like, I Providence, Rhode so. Island has a bigger population than Grand Rapids. Depends if you include metro areas or not. That's probably yeah. why they merged just with Battle Creek and Kalamazoo is they were taking the broader, like, metro that's a area. That's quite a broad yeah. area. I mean, for those of you not living in the area, Battle Creek is a good, what, hour-plus drive away? Oh, yeah, and Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo is, is a good too, hour. Yeah. And, and that's and what watered down further, our so. Bibleness, too, because if they just would have taken a purified... Real Grand Rapids sample it would have been much you more. You think Bible Grand Rapids than. would be worse well, yeah. than including the the two? That was going to be my inqu- a yeah, question too. Would it deflate our numbers or inflate them? I think it would. Uh, I think deflate. the stereotype is that Kalamazoo is a really liberal town. Right. Right. Uh, by the way, sorry for our national and international listeners. <laughs> we don't give a crap about Grand <laughs> Wait, Rapids, Michigan. We However, are- if you're interested in Battle Creek, you can watch the movie Road to Wellville for a satirical look at oh, the founding gosh. of Battle Creek yeah. and uh, oh. the Kellogg Company. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh if you had cornflakes <laughs> and graham crackers it comes from here. <laughs> That's right. We are a locally broadcast radio show so it makes sense to talk about local news too. Yes. Uh and uh but yeah, Kalamazoo has this reputation for being a more liberal city. I would think that might drive our numbers down. Battle Creek I don't know. I, I'm not sure Battle Creek has a reputation. Do they have a reputation? Oh, yeah, they're quite conservative. 
Yeah. Um, I think the lesson is sampling. You can change the results of a study just by right. roping some more people into your sample. It's like juries. You can basically determine the outcome by determining the kind mm-hmm. of what makes up the jury. So, But, of course, there's more to this Barna study than just little old number 36, Grand Rapids. Um, Luke, why don't you tell us a little what bit was, about what this study was about? What what does Bible-minded even mean? Yeah, that's what I – being the stats nerd and the survey nerd, that's the first thing I wanted to know is, well, how do you define Bible-minded? And it turns out there was – Two broad components they based it on. Was that correct, Jeremy? Yeah, they did uh, 42,855 interviews nationwide, and they tested uh, who self-reports that they read the Bible in a typical week and who strongly asserts that the Bible is accurate in the principles it teaches. Those were the two criteria. I would like to see those two criteria split because I suspect there's a lot more people who firmly believe in the Bible that do not actually read the Bible on a weekly basis. Inaccurate in its principles, what principles does does that mean? Those theologically loaded. Or what if you are a very Bible-minded person but you're not a literalist? Or literate. So for that, for, because they based them on those criteria, the results overall were pretty predictable. You had like – I think mm-hmm. number one was Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so in general, like the southern cities were the top ones and then the lowest Bible-minded ones were the northeast ones in Vermont and Maine. Providence, Rhode Island, Rhode Island with, yeah. with 8 yep. percent I believe was uh, the lowest of the of the 96 cities they looked at or 97 cities they looked at. Which mirrors – yeah, that yeah. mirrors the general statistics of the more religious south and the least, the least religious north. Northeast. Mm-hmm. Providence is the lowest. That sounds a bit biased. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we here in the heartland are right in the middle of the of the spectrum. So almost on every survey, you just look in the middle of the states, and there's Michigan, like fighting it out for twenty five or twenty. Except places. obesity. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to be good at something. <laughs> We're no Ohio, but well, we're up there. I was uh, I was a little uh, taken aback that uh, we weren't higher on the list than we than we are. I, I mean, I I'm, I'm happy about that. But yeah. At the same yeah. time, I have this image of myself as you know, down in the trenches, fighting <laughs> right. the war for secularism and free thought <laughs> in a bastion of religiosity, and suddenly come to learn, like, nah, you know, you know, you're you're up there, but not very high. Thirty-six. Nothing to brag about. We should all remember, though, that if you did an actual survey on Bible-mindedness, i.e., knowledge of the Bible, mm-hmm. I think that you'd get quite different results. I, I wish somebody would, uh, mm-hmm. would point that out. To buy, instead of asking a self-report of "I read the Bible a lot and I'm believing it literally," actual knowledge of stuff, yeah. you know, like what, how many gospels are there and who said what and everything yeah, like instead that. Instead of relying on self-reports, as we know, the uh, from previous episodes, the if you look at Pew's Pew um, survey of religious knowledge. Atheists come out on top, baby. Yeah, and actually, it, uh, funny you should mention that because one of the articles I was reading for today led me to a link of "Are you smarter than an atheist?" quiz, which was uh, thirty-six questions about uh, about religion, about all religions. I, yeah, I've taken this before, but I took it again, and turns out I am as smart as an atheist when it comes to religion. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you. I was very pleased, but uh, yeah, they point out right in that quiz, which is on Christian Science Monitor, I believe, that uh, agnostics and atheists rank the highest in knowledge about I'm, I'm just waiting for them to do uh, like a, a family feud type game show where they come on down and there's like all these evangelicals on one side and all the other the atheists. And, well, you, you know, know, they do have the, the Bible, uh, what is it, the uh, Bible Challenge? Bible the American Challenge. Bible yeah, yeah. We should... Uh, Enter that as a group and, and, and just take the cake. We could clean up on that show, <laughs> I think. That would be a, 
That would be fun. Now, in other news, this is a story I believe we've uh, touched on over the years now. Um, the Boy Scouts of America have a problem with the gays, mm. and they have for quite a while now. Um, I believe it was in 2000 the Supreme Court ruled that the Boy Scouts could disallow gay members, that's um, uh, boys, as well as um, scout masters, instructors. Do you know what the justification for that was? If Yes. If it is considered one of their core beliefs of the group, they can disallow um, homosexuals. That's if a, that is one of their core it's beliefs. It's a private group, so they could form their so they can do that. Exactly. Really now, it's the Boy Scouts internally are questioning whether or not that is one of their core beliefs, and um, it's starting to look like for many uh, in the BSA that that is not a core belief anymore. Well, they left it up to the to a lot of the individual communities, and so they had all these people like from the San Francisco gay tro- you know troops of scouts like you know don't don't bias against people. And then you had the mm-hmm. southern predictable like southern ones, or they had a convention I think in Texas is the the headquarters. That somewhere. was where they had their big uh, where they d- discussed this issue just recently. So, yeah, so they, the, to them, and there's a lot of there's disproportionate n- numbers of like Mormons and conservative Christians in mm-hmm. the Boy Scouts. So a lot of their money and support comes from there. So they're really sort of between pressure groups on either side and if they – I think it's interesting if they did leave it up to a local level because then you would have – as you go around the country or like if you have like a jamboree where they all mm-hmm. come together and mm-hmm. gather, you'd have like you know all these radical <laughs> – yeah. I would just pay to have somebody take films of like the Texas group next to the San Francisco group. Yeah. Right. I, just, right. I just really want to see some like stereotypical merit badges included. <laughs> like, they just be expand like, their repertoire to like you get interior your, design. Or, <laughs> yeah, you have like Big Gay Al the, uh, from South Park, you know. We're going to make some sheets now and tie them together. We're going to fashion some houseless chaps here. Time to pitch a tent. (laughs) What they were going to – that was the plan. When these headlines first started coming out a couple of weeks ago, it was the Boy Scouts of America were going to end their uh, ban on gay members and then leave it up to the local groups to decide each local chapter. But But. right before they did that. Yeah, yeah. There was a closed-door executive board meeting in Mm -hmm. the beginning of the month. Where they whipped out calculators and calculated how much money they would get from Well, oops. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's – it sounds like from the way the Wall Street Journal and uh, other publications are presenting it, it sounds like they were ready to go yes. on dropping the nationwide ban. It, it, and which, then they which is had kind second of easy thoughts. for them in a lot of ways because now you're just leaving it up to the local groups. So they can say gays are okay, yeah. but all of the local groups can then decide gays are still not okay. Right, exactly. right. So you're still, still, you're still keeping people in the fold. You're not yes. seeing a nationwide collapse it, of the group or it anything. It seems kind of like a, like a no-brainer for them. I think obviously um, the right thing, as history will say, is drop the ban. Yeah, this is yeah, ridiculous. Yeah. But for them, it seems like a smart move, say, give yeah. it to the local group. In- incremental be, um, change. <clears throat> yeah. But um, they were uh, – they had representatives from different religious groups uh, there who, of course, lobbied against this and begged them to delay the vote. Give give them a, a couple more months to conduct interviews mm-hmm. and see what the scoutmasters decide uh, look at legal troubles. I guess there yes. apparently could be some legal problems hmm. if they do allow their individual chapters to make local rules that there was some discussion as, yeah. as to whether or not. And I'm, I'm no legal expert or expert on anything really. But going back to the 2000 ruling of the Supreme Court saying if it's 
one of their core beliefs, they can do that. And if the the national organization says, no, we're not going to ban gays, then it would be hard for a local group to defend the position saying this is a core belief of the Boy Scouts of America that we right. can- and uh so yeah but as far as is it is it financial are they mm-hmm. are they afraid of losing their support of these different church groups and organizations most certainly mm-hmm. but um some of the information that's coming up out about why they decided to lift the ban in the first place was financial pressures exactly okay. um this it, it wasn't a moral choice either right. way this is all yeah, about yeah. money uh, for example scout's chief executive Wayne Brock has uh, stated that what prompted this discussion in the first place was corporate sponsorships mm-hmm. threatening to withdraw their yeah. support of the group. Well, and after you know Chick Fil A last year and all of that, <laughs> that is right, that a totally a founded um, fear because the winds of change have come. And in other words, they're they're suppressing their religious freedom by not exactly emptying barrels of money upon their organization. That's right. And so. It, well, the Boy Scouts is just in a financial pinch as it is right now. They've uh, their membership has declined about nineteen percent in the past wow. decade. Yeah, just since since two thousand, it's dropped that much. And um, uh, of course, some of this has to do with just people know more about what the Boy Scouts Scouts are about. Yes, mm-hmm. they don't like the image anymore. Well, and that's and their anti-gay stance yes, is not right. helping them. Right, and then other uh, then there's probably some more just. Accidental reasons, like yeah. with the availability of different things on the internet, and uh, there's an app for pretty much everything yeah. you can yeah. get a merit badge for. So. Yeah, you don't have as many youth. Just- Siri, how do I tie a sheep shank? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll show you. Well, actually, I uh, I was a Boy Scout for a while. Were you Me really? Were you guys a Boy Scout? How, yeah. how did you make it up? Uh, how did I make it up? How, how like, high? What was your highest rank? Oh, you? I, you know, I did the Weeblow thing. I love that Which one. is Weeblo. terrible. Yeah. 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 Just, no one should do that no. to a young child. The scarves were checkered, though. I was not yeah. a Boy Scout. I was, I was merely a Cub Scout. Uh, but we had flashy orange shirts, and I had paws all over them. I was a when cadet, which is the, the Christian Reformed version of Boy Scouts. <laughs> I made it to second-class scout. There's mm. Tenderfoot, and then there's second-class, and I that's where I stopped. And then there's, like, first-class Life Scout mm. and something else. So, so you could start a I fire? Can, I could say that my experience in the Boy Scouts was pretty positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm to this day really into hiking and backpacking. That's a part of who I am, and uh, I don't think I would have been as into that if right. I hadn't give, been given those opportunities. I, I don't think what what they do is a bad thing, really. I mean, it's not my thing. I don't I, remember any kind but, of religious proselytizing or he-man macho sure. stuff. I, I just remember – be prepared. No, but some of the <laughs> that was that was what they were the drilling into our heads. Was if just, you look at the, the loyalty no. or, or the uh, the code that they had those elements that you know brave, clean, thrifty, and reverent. They put the reverent in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know all the other ones. You know I don't think that we would have a problem with of being thrifty and brave and and obe- you know loyal. But when they get into the things hey, that that are I'm Dutch. Thrifty is in my blood. <laughs> we're gonna have a coupon merit badge. <laughs> yeah. um, but the but the reverent part. That's where you start to probably lose. The yeah. free thinking yeah. types. Why mm-hmm. should I, you know, or, or probably the obedience one too, like obedience to everything? What if you're stupid? Should I obey you then? Or? Yeah. 
Yeah, it. I mean, it's it, it's a throwback. It's kind of a sloppy patriotism it, too. Yeah, they, it totally. In, in is. But they get sixty nine point four percent of uh, Boy Scout troops are sponsored by religious groups. Mm-hmm. According mm-hmm. to the Wall Street Journal here, so that is that is a big chunk I, of the pot. How about yeah. the, are there any versions of the Boy Scouts that are more you know liberal and secular, free thinking Scouts? Camp Quest, I, that's not yeah, really, you know, you know, alternative. scouting and that sort of. Yeah, thing? what if they're I, like I a know. schism and then let the conservatives have their little conservative group and then mm-hmm. have the liberals start a liberal? Well, that, that was the fear that this was going to lead to a, a breakdown of the Boy Scouts. Let Isn't the conservatives that kind of what the, happened with the Girl Scouts, anyways. I'm not, I'm not really up on the yeah, history. Yeah, totally of this, different group. Different but, group. They were different. Well, obviously, oh, I know I obviously the Girl Scouts yeah. didn't schism off of the Boy Scouts. What I'm, what I'm saying is, <laughs> we're they, girls. They we're made boys. them from their ribs. Jeremy. I thought they started <laughs> off. Okay, that's how the schism happened. But let me back in the day, there was only one scouting troop, but then it was lonely. All right, I'm just gonna quit that. <laughs> God said we could make a whole new scout troop. Out of their rib. But what they've done now is is push the decision off until May so they can let people, uh, you know, spout off for yeah. a few months on and what they should do. They're going to vote now not as a closed executive board meeting, but um, they're going to be voting. 1,400-member National Council. Yep. So – Wow. Big, big. They group. have a much larger council that will decide in May. I'm, I'm guessing if we want our predictions, I'm guessing mm. they won't make the change. I see. I, I, I have a feeling that they kind of have to now because it's kind of they kind of teased it a little. Yeah, bit. that's true. It would, so if it they would don't, be really bad for them to not be our nightmare if they backed yeah. out at this it, point. And quite yeah. frankly, for the. Local groups, you know, if they make it so the local groups can decide, that's very accommodating to them. Right. And a lot of these people who are attracted to the Boy Scouts don't have anywhere else to go. So it's not like they're going to go, well, the the Boy Scouts have gone gay. I guess we're going to go to the military instead. No, that's what I'm afraid of is they're going to have paramilitary <laughs> scouts. Yeah. Yeah. Gonna, like, well, you know. Build bunkers and like here's how to stockpile ammo and set a snare to trap people in a tiger pit. <laughs> what, what does this have to do with camping and hiking? Oh, no, screw that. When the gays come for your food, what are you going to do, boy? <laughs> when the gays come I'm going to shoot it. That's right. You're going to shoot them. <laughs> I, I want to point out too that there is at least one uh, religious leader from the scouts who is is on the right side of this. I think um, uh, Jay. Lenro, the former national chairman of the Jewish Committee on Scouting, um, has called the continuing ban, quote, absolutely allowing the teachings of certain religious groups to trump the teachings of other religious groups, mm. uh, end quote. So he is uh, opposed to the continued ban. So this is not all of the religious groups are saying to the Boy Scouts, you can't do this. There are some the religious folks out there who are on the right side of this as well. And I just want to acknowledge that. Which, mm. uh, so there you have it. Well, once the gays get in, maybe we can start talking about whether or not we'll ever be allowed in as atheists. Yeah. Because yeah. that's one they're not discussing. Nope. That's one ban they're not discussing lifting. Well, they claim that um, anyone, religiously speaking, is welcome. Um, but if you actually – because I uh, – my uh, – uh, ex-father-in-law was a uh, scoutmaster and he argued with me about this and then I actually looked at their bylaws and it doesn't say atheists can't be in but it does say 
It does require belief. But you have options. There's a lot of different religions that you can be, but non-religious yeah, but is I, I, there is a, There are oaths that yep. you need to take if you want to continue to ascend up the – on the wrong. We've, yep. we've had cases of, say, Eagle Scouts who are atheists who have who couldn't graduate yep. to that last they, I've always because wondered. they didn't affirm the the for God and country part. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing that always confused me is that when they, when they have their jamborees, they make a big deal of some of these pseudo pagan Indian ceremonies, like when yeah. you have the points of light ceremony. I forget what you call it, where you the arrow order of the arrow. I mean, a lot of these things w- would border on like you know we're trying yeah. to mimic a Native American ceremony with. Right. Uh, the, the costumes and right. things like that. I'm like, wow, you guys are really basically pagan mm-hmm. scouts now. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I, I never, yeah, I never thought, thought of it. <laughs> well, here's another thing I would just plug real quickly for those listeners who, th- who enjoy this discussion. Go and see Penn and Teller's uh, bullshit episode where they had a bunch of gay kids yes. in, a, <laughs> in like a scouting oh, competition yeah, yeah. with a bunch of yep. straight kids. The gays versus straights uh, on The, uh, the campsite was spotless. <laughs> those sheets <laughs> were folded neater than you could ever fold them. That was true. I, I don't love everything pressed, about uh, that show, uniforms, but that was good. Starched and Who better than a scout colors. to organize a camp that's, you know, a gay scout? Could, you know, they should have like special skill areas there. And uh, let, let's be honest. It is deeply hypocritical to force children to wear neckerchiefs <laughs> and tell them that they can't be gay. And speaking of hypocrisy, lead into the Catholic Church, as it always is, isn't it? Uh, a Catholic man has sued a Catholic hospital for malpractice because his wife and the twins she was carrying inside of her died when she turned up in, in the emergency room and her doctor never bothered to answer a page. Um, <coughs> the Catholic hospital uh, filed uh, an argument saying that the fetuses were in fact – not persons with legal rights. And so they're not liable to their So loss. they're not liable for their loss. It would just be the, the mother's death then that would count. So the Catholic hospital and their lawyer is arguing that fetuses are not people with legal rights. Which is incredible. It really <laughs> is remarkable. So you, have, you have to wonder, I mean, is this defense approved by the, uh, the defendant? As I understand – Lawyers don't just go off on their own. That's what I'm thinking. Especially in a a high-profile, big-money case like this. Now, clearly, he doesn't have papal justification. Sure, right. (laughs) Maybe they were just like non-Catholic lawyers. I could see them sitting around a conference table or something going, hey, I got an idea. Fetuses eight people. Let's go. But with you know that what? <laughs> he, he's absolutely right. I mean, he is right. That is the law. Fetuses do not have the same rights as actual human beings. So he's right about that. But for the Catholic hospital and by extension the Catholic Church to use that argument is really uh, and then tipping their hand a little bit too much, isn't it? Granted, yes. We could very easily overreach with this article. This isn't a statement about actual doctrinal changes in the no. Catholic Church. Right. Just a more of a point It's just of, an abortion of consistency. Yes. <laughs> Boom. Oh, very good. Yeah. See, I want to know at what point somebody picked that up about whether it was like uh, – yeah, I'm going to call the lawyers. Listen, do you guys know anything about our policy on that one? Or like, was it like that? Or was it like, you know, they the, got the answering machine. As like, the, ah, as we'll the church hierarchies reading through the documents. Great, great, great. They get to like page five. 
Okay, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Do, do <laughs> wait a minute. The lawyer didn't think anyone would notice. Like uh, the, the media is not really paying very close attention to what care. the Catholic Church does these days. <laughs> this is just going to slide past everyone. That's, see, that's the amazing part to me. Is that at what oh. point did it become like we have a problem? Yeah, call me back. Yeah, yeah. But they may be they may be changing that defense. Correct. Yeah. So there's they uh, the line seems to be that they are they went rogue. Somebody went rogue with it, and and the hospital is now saying yes. that our stance is that well, the hospital chain. The hospital chain. Okay. It's saying that's not our stance. But but they haven't withdrawn the suit or the the um, defense, have they? They haven't yeah, they changed haven't, their have tactics. They settled the. Well, the the exactly. hospital leaders are no longer going to use the, that as their legal defense. No, they <laughs> okay. might try to defend Okay, we did it once. We promised we won't do it again. So they're going to come up with something else. They're, 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 yeah. they're still going to maintain they weren't negligent. They just right. won't use that as the defense. But then if they are found to be negligent, they should have to pay for you know the equivalent of three deaths. So, yeah, yeah it's on appeal right now at the Colorado Supreme Court. Hmm. Well, we'll see how that all shakes out. Um uh, here's hoping it doesn't end up making the Catholic Church look good. Well, you know, the this is going to be uh, actually just I, this is my prediction briefly that there are mm-hmm. going to be a lot more cases like this in the future now that we have more like viability yeah. of younger, you know, yeah. at an earlier Absolutely. stage of pregnancy because people are going to start to see the legal implications of these fetus are is a person mm-hmm. thing when it comes to things like do they have property rights. Do they have right. rights of inheritance? Like, you know, if you have a choice between the mother and the kid, now there's going to be what? Like, are there going to be charges filed against people that abort a kid? If mm-hmm. you miscarry, is it because of purely natural means or is it because you went and exercised and didn't realize you were pregnant? And your doctor and didn't tell you. Now your womb is a crime scene. Or, or, yeah. or should, are, are women accountable now from the moment of conception? For well, missing there, for missing fetuses, there are certainly just like missing children. You can't say that fetuses aren't the same thing now. I'm for right, that purpose. Right? Are we going to have an office that tracks down every woman who was pregnant but is no longer pregnant? Well, at least we can take comfort in knowing this won't be settled along scientific or philosophical. <laughs> <laughs> that it'll so be cynical. That it'll be written into a state constitution or something like that by popular vote or uh, yeah, or executive nice. decree. Thank God for that because Thank that goodness. is really the way these things should be decided. Um, hey, but in good legal news, uh, this is encouraging. Follow-up from a story we've been talking about for a while now. Uh, remember Sam Mullet? Mm. How could I forget Sam and Johnny Mullet? <laughs> That's right. Sam, uh, Sam uh, Mullet Sr., 67 years old, uh, the ringleader of a break-off Amish cult that was essentially kidnapping um, Amish I'm people. Sorry, I love the phrase break-off Amish <laughs> yeah, cult. Um, they were kidnapping <laughs> mainstream Amish and uh, cutting their beards, which is something that Amish men don't do once they're married. Business it, in the front, violence in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get a mullet reference in. Um, and uh, so he was arrested along with uh, 15 family members who are all part of this uh, – what's being called a cult of his. And, the mullet family. Um, it's they uh, Sam Mullet was sentenced this past week to 15 years in prison. Um, the prosecution pushed for life in prison, but at 67 years old, 15 years in prison is 
pretty close Weren't to life in prison for, for him. They were going for a hate crime? It's yep. a hate. He was convicted uh, as a crime. hate crime. Yes. yes. Because of the symbolic nature of the yep. crime. Uh, well, you know, and I guess. And as we mentioned previously covering the continuing adventures of Sam and Johnny Mullen, mm-hmm. uh, that th- this was not. Um, when you talk about a beard cutting rampage, it does it does sound like okay, so big deal. These people were injured. Yes, yeah. they were well, they seriously were injured. They were threatened and held down. There were concerns about the yes. lives and welfare of the people in this in this uh, cult. It was looking like it might go Jonestown, and so that was part of the reason trying to keep keep Samuel Mullet in jail for a while. Mm. And and um, in fact, that's the reason him, they gave him setting his bail so high yes. and other things. Was that concern that this group could have time to kind of re- reprogram before something terrible happened? Yeah. The, so uh, the fact he's in jail is actually a really good thing for for that in, for that group of people. At the sentencing, they feel oppressed and they circle the wagons that's more right. and become more dangerous. Uh, circle the buggies. Federal, yes. Federal prosecutor Bridget uh, Brennan urged the judge, and this comes from an article from the Christian Science Monitor. Um, urged the judge at the sentencing to punish Mullet adequately. Quote, he is a danger to this community. She said he is capable of controlling 15 defendants, end quote. So mm. this is, I mean, yeah. this guy's a cult leader. And in or, fact, or gang leader, basically. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, we, tend to, we tend to romanticize the, those, some of those groups like the Amish by saying, oh, isn't that quaint? They're sort of like, you know, I saw the movie Witness. They're like that. But right. they're really, you know, you, you can have thugs in any shape, any religion. The TV any. show Amish Mafia is a fine example of well, this. Well, you know, you know how they where do they their reference Sam Mullins. That is a show my wife loves it oh because she God. has terrible taste in most things. Do you know how their drive by <laughs> shootings go? Much. The, the <laughs> drive by shootings in the Amish group, they go, Snip, 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 snip. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah. then they repack their It takes muskets. forever to reload their muskets, too. Right? <laughs> halt! Right. But, uh, but Sam Mullet was admonished for his attitude about this whole thing. Basically, you know, what's the big – this isn't kidnapping. We're just grabbing people and forcing – It's not like cutting off Jeremy's soul patch. This is me. Right. <laughs> it's not just an affectation of don't people. Their beard of, is – Don't make fun of my douchebag soul patch. But uh, they interviewed um, one of Mullet's unmarried grandsons. Uh, Edward Mast uh, about his family's attitude. This is again from the Christian Science Monitor. He said, quote, uh, they're steadfast in the belief that the attacks didn't rise to the level of a hate crime. Quote, the beard, what it stands for me, what I know about it, once you're married, you just grow a beard. That's the way the Amish is. As for the victims, he added, they got their beard back again, so what's the big deal about it? (laughs) Clearly, not really understanding um, the the symbolic importance of yeah. this, and beyond that, like beyond just shaving the beard, we're talking about grabbing people and abducting them. Sure, they release them after they shave their beard, but we're mm-hmm. talking about both physical, psychological trauma that this the is people suffered. It, it is. They did this to terrorize the Amish community. So, um, but I he's going if, to jail. Uh, I wonder if they'll have electricity in his cell. I, you know what? And I don't know if, if Mullet's uh, cult shuns uh, all of the fancy things like electricity. Oh, yeah, I guess I don't know. Some I'm of not, them have different levels yeah. of sort of rustic. Like on Amish Mafia, there's a guy who has a car, which they generally frown on, but they let him get away with it. I, I caught your Weird Al reference there, by the way. Thank you. I'm the pious guy. All the omelets want to be like. <laughs> That's right. I love that song. Um, 
Anyway, I think it's time now to turn to some counter-apologetics, shall we? Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. You know, the thing about genocide is is, is I uh, just can't stop talking about it. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> The thing about genocide is it's uh, yeah. The thing about genocide is it's it's hard to move on, and uh, I, I thought maybe we could move on and, and do some other subjects. But there are a few things I wanted to say about our RD extra that we uh, heard last time. Yes, if you don't know what I'm talking about, one of our latest releases was a debate between Justin and uh, who's the gentleman you were debating? Uh, an Anglican curate, uh, John John Allister. That is a perfect name for an Anglican, <laughs> right? That is the most English-sounding name you could ask for. Uh, on, on the subject of the Amalekite genocide and um, a pretty lively debate. We, yeah. uh, I think Justin did pretty well. Uh, I think anybody who listened to it was pretty frustrated with the uh, uh, Anglican minister there. I think it's important to note that as many Christians called in and complained about his – his particular argument basically trying to whitewash the Amalekite genocide. As many Christians complained as atheists. Yeah, that and, was surprising uh, to me. It reaffirmed my idea of, of why I think this is an important issue to talk about. You can, you can look at talking about the Old Testament violence as kind of low-hanging fruit. This is really easy for a critic of religion to bring up, look at these horrible, nasty things. But it can be seen as kind of a, a cheap shot. But I think it's all the more to import, uh, absolutely all the more important to talk about these because it's it's an effective debating strategy. Yes. You can uh, pretty much any way they answer if they give up the Bible and the authority of the Bible. Well, that creates major problems for their right. theology where they're coming from. If they want to maintain, you know, if they want to affirm all these things actually did happen. And kind of bite the bullet. Well, then they've pretty much lost the moral high ground. Right. They can claim a certain kind of consistency. Well, God tells us, commands these things, therefore they're righteous. But then giving any intelligible version of righteousness is going to become very difficult for them. Just a few arguments down the road, their moral worldview is going to collapse. And, and I don't want it to sound petty like this is a great debate issue. No, this is we're talking about yeah, the yeah. slaughter of hundreds of people that either actually happened or was at least advocated for in this supposedly holy text. This is important. I mean, uh, if we're yeah. it, the Holocaust is not just something that's valuable to go, well, look, Nazis were bad, the Holocaust. Yeah. No, it's bad because it's a bad thing and it's well, something we should talk about. And, and it's not something thusly. yeah, it's not something that's uh, several thousand years old, and now it's right. over with. Right. This was a justification for manifest destiny to some yep, degree. Absolutely. Yeah. That's I got a kick out of that. A commenter on our blog, a Christian commenter, said, "Oh, what are you Americans who, you know, you live in a nation that's based on a genocide? What do you have to complain about a, f a few thousand people in biblical times dying?" Uh, to which I'm thinking, oh, they're connected. Yeah, exactly. Believe me, a lot of the rationale, mm -hmm. uh, you can find a lot of the rationale for why it's okay to annihilate these Native Americans is because look what these holy pilgrims Absolutely. in the promised land did to their, to the, uh, to those occupying yeah, this land. Yeah, even the Mormons you, thought that way. And when you look at a lot of the commentaries, what you read is that 
uh, passages in in first like first Samuel 15 a lot of this is seen as by most scholars to be uh, pro Davidic propaganda mm-hmm. to justify uh, David's uh, usurpation of the throne right. of Saul's throne. Right. Uh, so you, it's very clear that Saul's is an, 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 an inadequate uh, person to bring God's uh, will to power. We've also talked in, in God Thinks Like You on the uh, attitudes towards warfare, um, attitudes towards the Iraq war, suspicions of Armageddon and support for Israel's policies. Mm-hmm. These are very much affecting our lives. Right, right. Yeah. This and is every, a, and the world. This is a this is a debate that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, not only because it touches on so many things of philosophical, ethical, and theological importance, but that it does have an impact on people's view of the world. Some of the highlights, if if you missed, there were a few doozies in there. I seem to think the apologist was arguing most of the time that when God told when God told the Israelites to slaughter every man, woman, and child, the and, conclusion they would have taken from that was, yeah. don't slaughter every man, woman, and child. <laughs> he actually said it argument. doesn't matter what that says. It matters what the Israelites took from it, which I found very strange. Wow. So they didn't actually follow that to the letter. Right. And that's the significant part. Yeah, yeah. Right? So okay. it's, I don't know, like he's essentially saying God said that, but he meant this. He said they would have been trained in warfare. He goes to Deuteronomy 20 where it gives directions for warfare, yeah. uh, which includes things like uh, giving people a chance to surrender. Uh, it has some protections for non-combatants. And uh, he says, you know, when God said kill every man, woman, and child, everything that breathes. Um, that was just rhetoric. He, that was, they he was they just, were actually thinking De- Deuteronomy 20, which is way more conservative. And um, It's a little bit like before and not applicable, a football way. game, yeah. the coach going, let's go out there and kill them. Right. Well, they're like, well, we're not actually going to murder them. Yeah. We're going to win the football game. Yeah. Well, which yeah. other apologists called him out on this. Um, one, one in particular, Randall Rouser, who's uh, – is that how you say his last name? I, I, I think so, yeah. Uh, he uh, – uh, Randall's actually been on the show before, one of our extras debating the nativity. Mm. Uh, he was uh, arguing for the Christian position there. He's been uh, very helpful to us on the podcast. He put the lie to this one right away he, and pointed out on his blog, RandallRouser.com, that uh, Deuteronomy 20 is a different kind of warfare. It doesn't apply to harem warfare, that these 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 protections were specifically overridden by God in the case of the Amalekites. And you can see that directly in the text. Uh, Justin pointed out the same issue during the debate. So he can't whitewash the genocides by that. Actually, you know, Rouser did a really good deconstruction of the of the debate. I would highly recommend it. Uh, to our listeners, uh, RandallRouser.com, an unbelievable defense of the Amalekite genocide, and pointed out some other issues with with the debate. Um, for some reason, the Christian apologists kept on talking about corporate identity. Uh, God wants to wipe out not the Amalekites, but their corporate identity. Their brand? Yes, yeah. their brand oh. as a, a force that resisted Israel. Corporations are people too, my And uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> And Rouser just points out, look, uh, I like what he does is he kind of takes to show how obscene uh, these defenses are. He kind of codifies them into rules of warfare. Mm. So he calls this the first rationale for genocide. Some cultural, religious, or ethnic groups can be so opposed to other groups 
uh, and their cultural, religious, or ethnic identity, that that second group could be warranted in conducting a genocide of the first group. <laughs> <laughs> or, or the real whopper that a lot of our commenters took issue with was because they could run away, yeah. it's the parents' fault if some of those children were slaughtered. Wow. Yeah. Victim blaming on a whole new scale. To which Rouser says, uh, Alistair's principle, he calls it Alistair's principle of blame the victim. When Army One invades Territory X and begins killing the children of Territory X, the parents of the children of the Territory X are responsible for their deaths because those parents did not successfully remove How them. How dare they let us slaughter their children? <laughs> And uh, he brings us into the context of Hutus and Tutsis mm-hmm. and that sort of, and you know the Rwandan genocide and says, look, these were the same arguments that were yeah. being made. We yep. have a right. They're they're siding with the colonial oppressors. We need to wipe out their entire culture. I want I want to give Rouser one more set of props. I uh, took a look at his apologetics book, The Swedish Atheist, The Scuba Diver, and Other Apologetic Rabbit Trails. Isn't the Swedish atheist a Muppet? There's no God. Fernity theism, Jernigurndy. Skewerdy I'm glad we laugh at our jokes. <laughs> so that someone is. Yes. He says in this book, uh, Rouser, Rouser says, I'm utterly incredulous about the idea of the Israelites being commanded by God to slaughter children in his name. I've read contemporary accounts of Christian Hutus righteously killing Tutsis in Rwanda, and I have no doubt that they represent the depths of human evil. In my view, changing the Hutus to Israelites and the Tutsis to Canaanites in 1994 to 1440 B.C., Changes nothing morally speaking. Evil is still evil. And that's the kind of thing I, I want to see these yeah. apologists saying. Mm. Uh, that that's just that's great. This guy this is a credit to uh, – yeah. Yeah. Uh, not try to whitewash these things or be God's PR agent. Mm-hmm. But it does leave the question, you know, OK, Randall, what's your view instead? Are these passages in the Bible, Are they were they not meant to be in the Bible? Mm-hmm. He argues at the bottom of his blog post that he's frustrated that no other alternatives to interpreting the scriptures are presented here. Reminds me of one of these Facebook memes I've seen around with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What's oh, Willy Wonka. The Willy yeah, Wonka. Condescending Willy Wonka. Yeah. yeah, yeah, condescending Willy Wonka meme where he goes, oh, I see, I see. The genocide has a context. You know, please do tell. <laughs> yeah. I want to see what the context for interpreting genocide is here. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rouser, to his credit, is one of the few I've ever seen who's actually attempted to give us an answer there. Uh, this is going to be taken from his book, The Swedish Atheist, and from a PowerPoint lecture he did on the imprecatory in, in psalms, which for anyone who doesn't know, there are a number of psalms that make curses on people. Those are the, really the best. Some ones. of the most unpleasant stuff you'll find in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. We actually covered that at earlier shows when the pastors were making imprecatory prayers against Obama, like his. That's right. You know, yeah. May his children be whatever. You know, they were. Yeah, they yeah, were yeah. Just saying, oh, it's just the Psalms. I'm just quoting. The right, they're just repeating the Psalms. <clears throat> it's in the Bible. Um, it must be okay. Rouser don't does not think either of these are moral teachings. He doesn't think they're inerrant moral teachings of the Bible. If I were to qualify his hermeneutics, so his particular strategy of, of interpreting the Bible, it looks like a verbal plenary inspiration idea, which for those who aren't familiar with that, it's the idea that the words are directly inspired by God. What people say are inspired by God and all of them are. 
but it allows room that human authors will sometimes include particular viewpoints of their culture and time and other things mm. that are may, may have errors in them. So it's not directly from the mouth of God as, say, the, the Quran. It's is not viewed. dictated, yes. yes. This would be the opposite of – it would be the strongest view of inspiration you could have mm-hmm. below the idea that God dictated these right. things word by word. So it's word. inspired, but there's still yeah. a filter. It is a, still a very strict, very conservative view of inspiration. Mm. God meant the individual words many times to be in there, mm-hmm. but he did not take over the mind of the authors. He did not obliterate He's every not trace the of their – of their humanity. Uh, and uh, Rouser, I don't know if he would say he subscribes to this, but it's what he seems to be articulating. But he wants to expand possible errant portions of the Bible to include some of its moral teachings. And so he calls this his qualified embrace of the scriptures, which he cra- contrasts to a straightforward embrace. Somebody would just say, hey, look, God was right to kill the Amalekites. And so quoting Rouser. According to the qualified embrace, we accept these texts as God-breathed scripture, but that does not mean the human author is morally inerrant. Thus, we should recognize that the psalmist, for example, is in error and that God included his voice for other reasons. So that, that's kind of the key part. Um, since in his vision, version of inspiration, God in the final say allows all of these words to pass, we have to explain why there would be something that is not correct – it's not a good moral teaching, but God still in his plan wanted to include it in the revelation. It, is it like when I type something on my phone and autocorrect changes it to something I don't want, but I leave it because it's funny that way? I think is so. that essentially yes, it? Actually, okay. yes. I, I think that might be along <laughs> the lines that we're talking analogous. about. All right. All right. Um, especially if you were to say because it's ironic because mm-hmm. that's going to be one of his cases. Sure. Um, to try to sell this hermeneutic on us, he presents us with a distinction. The sensus literalis, the literal meaning of the text, uh, what the intention of the human authors was in writing the text, and the sensus plenior, uh, that is the meaning that God personally wanted to give to the text. Hmm. So he tries to demonstrate this by saying uh, – I, I hope he actually knows the meaning that God wanted to give the text because that well, that's always impressive to me. That is the issue here, right? Yeah. How do we determine – how do we separate the two? Do mm-hmm. we have a criteria or a guideline or are we just going with what we personally feel? Well, he but, knows the mind of God though, Because right? if it's the latter, that's not very impressive to yeah. me. Yeah. But anyways, uh, he says to justify this distinction – he quotes Hosea 11.1 1 as saying, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, which Hosea applied that to Israel being called out of slavery in Egypt, right? Uh, he says that's the census literalis of the text. That is what the human authors intended, actually. But God, we find out, actually had a different meaning for that text. And he turns to Matthew 2.15 where talking about Jesus and him coming out of Egypt – after fleeing Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through his prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So it's a kind of meta. This shows that God actually had a different meaning in mind. He preserves the original author's intent, uh, but you learn later learned there was the deeper truth here. There was the real meaning God intended for the words. Now, I just want to butt in for a moment and point out that the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, scour the Old Testament looking for anything that could even come close. They cherry-picked it. To, yes, yeah. to looking like – and and they, you know, 
they oftentimes use prophecies, right, that were directly fulfilled in the very book, yes. Old Testament book they were issued, and then We've find some again sort again. of symbolic yeah. fulfillment for Jesus. Mm-hmm. It, it seems to me that this is a this is much more just the gospel writers overreaching. It seems funny to me that this then would become his license for interpreting the texts <laughs> liberally, you know, however he wants. But anyways, if he's going to give himself the license to abandon a straightforward reading of the text, what criteria does he use? He quotes C.S. Lewis, actually, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. What a surprise. Not considered part of the canon, but uh, C.S. Lewis is pretty much close for a lot of Christians. Mm-hmm. From Reflections on the Psalms, Lewis says, we must not either try to explain them away, these these uh, nasty curses in the Psalms, or to yield for one moment to the idea that because it comes in the Bible, all this vindictive hatred must somehow be good or pious. The human qualities of the raw materials show through naivety, error, contradiction, even as in the cursing Psalms, wickedness are not removed. The total result is not the word of God in the sense every passage itself gives an impeccable science or history. It carries the word of God and we receive that word from it not by using it as an encyclopedia or as an encyclical but by steeping ourselves in its tone or temper, learning its overall message. So this is the one criteria I see Rouser actually define. Look at the overall tone and he says, well, the overall tone of the Bible is Jesus. And he reads, of course, from Matthew. He reads, I wish everyone here could see the expression on Luke's face when you said that because uh, <laughs> Luke reacted exactly the way I think everyone listening to this yeah. should have reacted to that statement. I'll have my say. What? <clears throat> you have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So Jesus teaches mercy, love for enemies. Uh, that clearly doesn't match with these genocidal uh, passages, with these cursing passages. So uh, clearly, clearly those couldn't have been from God. So why are they still in there? Basically makes two cases. First of all, it strengthens the narrative having them in there. Mm. And he draws a uh, an analogy with uh, uh, Dostoevsky's the brothers Karamazov. The Grand Inquisitor passage. Uh, yeah. Yep. It's a book within the, the story within the book. Yeah. So you have uh, Ivan and you have Ali, uh, Alyosha who both present two different viewpoints. One is a Christian viewpoint. One is, you know, uh, is a godless viewpoint. You know, why would the author, why would the author include both of these dialogues? Uh, he says, in fact, uh, Dostoevsky included – Alyosha's perspective to make Ivan a stronger character in the novel to propel the mm. novel forward, and uh, the, the psalmist did that all the time. The psalmist's curses might belong in the Bible, just like Ivan belongs in the brothers Karamazov, not because those curses themselves are inerrant, but rather because they play a pivotal role in the whole book. Okay. Then he adds mm-hmm. uh, irony. Perhaps this is a tool of irony. Yes, I know. This was the part that I loved. Yeah. And he says, well, one possible reason for God including this voice is irony, uh, the use of words to convey a meaning that is the opposite of its literal meaning. He says, the imprecatory psalms illustrate the ironic situation of one who, though shown grace, refuses to extend it to others. 
through the lens of Jesus, we can see, we can look at the psalmist and say, you are that man. Uh, but the real lesson is to turn the text back on ourselves for the psalmist rage is a mirror for all of us. Okay, I should explain that. You are this man. He's referring to David's uh, encounter with the prophet Nathan. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, David uh, sends a man off to war to die so he can take his wife, uh, the man's wife as his own. Bathsheba, right? Yeah. Right. And uh, the prophet Nathan uses an allegory, explain the situation, and David says, well, that guy should be killed. And Nathan mm-hmm. says, you are that man. He says, okay, this is a biblical case of irony, right? Uh, certainly David didn't wasn't wanting to kill himself, um, but the, when you pull the rug out and you see that you're the man he's talking mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. then you stand judged. The idea is we see this with the Psalms. When we come to Jesus, we realize the nast- nastiness of our situation. Now, I, 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 I'm a little curious. Wow. You know whether or not this is a response to the to the imprecatory psalms. I will we'll have to discuss further here, but but I don't know how this could be a response to something like the Amalekite genocide because you so, see God's so, being ironic. Yeah, I mean, so uh, we're being told that God is trying to slaughter everybody, and that that's just the author's intent here, mm, right? But then we have God judging and using this as a way to get David. To the throne. I mean, of how God um, values obedience over sacrifice, being the reason why Saul's saving a few animals to sacrifice to his God mm-hmm. was was reason to uh, have him lose the throne. Right. That seems like a or as a justification a for or King Josiah uses this as a rationale for centralizing worship under the temple. Right. Mm. It, it really does it. No, you're right, because this makes wreaks havoc of the entire message internally of the Old Testament. It really is a stretch. Uh, if you abandon these genocides, they have an important place in the narrative. God says uh, this is at the close of their first round of genocides. He says, uh, be very careful to love the Lord your God, for if you turn your back and join the survivors of these nations left here among you and intermarry them, notice there's an emphasis on intermarriage. Mm-hmm. This really is trying to wipe out a people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you marry their women and they yours, know assuredly that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a scourge on all sides yeah. and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land that the Lord has given you. Sorry, but those genocides, they're a very essential part to understanding not only the conquest, mm-hmm. but also understanding uh, the reason why they thought they were sent into exile in the first place. Mm-hmm. They weren't true enough to this commandment. Mm-hmm. You can't make sense of their later restoration, them f- following repentance and turning to the Lord again and being obedient to him without this genocidal narrative. It's too essential to the structure of the whole book to abandon in that way and to treat it as – if these are examples of the uh, human author's intent, then the majority of the Old Testament and its narrative arc are created by the authors and not by God. Yeah, he would have to would accept that. theologically troubling and at the least. We could even extend this uh, – we could extend this, this critique further. If his one criteria for separating out – the intention of the authors and the intention of God is overall tone, and Jesus somehow that the short little of clip the, of Gospels yeah. is somehow weighted heavier in our opinion. Mm-hmm. Well, it's in red. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, but of course that ignores passages where you know, don't think that I brought peace. Yeah, you know, I came to bring a sword. Exactly. Even Jesus is not consistent with his right. message. Well, Jesus, 
you so that's could, going to undermine that kind of yep. <laughs> inference there. The overall tone of the Gospels, especially Mark and especially Matthew, is apocalyptic in nature. Mm-hmm. There are tons of curses. Uh, Luke, Luke 13 verse 2 here, uh, he asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way – uh, that they were worse sinners than that they were worse sinners than all the other Galileans. No, I tell you, unless they repent, they will all you will all perish as they did. Or Luke nineteen. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, this is in a parable. But he says, bring right. them but here and slaughter the, them. It's clear that the king in that yeah. parable is God. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. The the overall message of Jesus is an apocalyptic one. If we're taking overall tone then maybe we should contextualize the merciful passages as being a kind of temporary niceness right. that's extended before that's God wipes everybody out. Being going very Stephen Law on us. Well, well you can look at – no, it's, but it's not even. I actually think that's the biblical, biblically sound interpretation. Uh, go to Romans. Paul's one of the earliest Christian writers. He's the closest to Jesus, uh, though you know there are issues there too. Uh, but Romans twelve seventeen verse 19, I think this is the attitude. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it's possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For mm. it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, say the Lord. The Ooh. idea is, look, God's going to wipe these people out. Be nice in the interim. Mm-hmm. You know, bring people over to the kingdom of heaven in the meantime. Because let's face it, they're screwed. They're going to get soon. snuffed out. Yeah. If you place that, uh, if you contextualize the merciful passages of God yeah. into the overall narrative, you know, I, I think you could make a better case using Randall's own hermeneutic here that we should toss off the merciful passages. They're the ones that are more inconsistent with the overall narrative that the Bible is taking. As far as the Dostoevsky analogy, I mean, that's just confusing and it's a false analogy anyways because we don't see – in the Bible, it's not two different characters sharing their perspectives. The confusion right. is over what God himself is saying uh, and the divine irony. I love that one. Uh, like uh, God is some sort of hipster god. He's wearing a Chairman Mao t-shirt throughout the entire Deuteronomic history and Psalms, <laughs> good chunk of the prophets too. Just for shits and giggles, and then when Jesus comes, right, you know, it comes off, and well, what? You didn't get it? I was being ironic. Yeah. Uh, that just, I have a hard time really accepting that seriously. That's not a God that I would particularly want to uh, follow. So I, I really appreciate Rouser's um, willingness to morally condemn those genocides, but I, I don't think he's given us anything as far as rescuing the rest of the scripture yep. from it. The great thing about the Bible is that with thousands of pages and different authors and different genres cobbled together, there's pretty much something for whatever God you want. Mm-hmm. And you can make him be a American God or a, you can make him be a African God or you can make him be liberal or conservative. And you can make him think like you. One might say that God thinks like you. Cue the music. Jeremy covered the actual phenomena there of what people do, but I, I, you know, can only follow with just the explanation of like, 
essentially psychologically what's going on there. And if I could sum it up in one word, it's projection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we start off with the premise of what we, you know, what we are, and then we cobble together a version that is synonymous with that. And I have an example of a couple studies where people that show at different levels people engaging in this projection process. Uh, this, uh, there was a study published last year that was really cool. The lead author is named Lee Ross, but uh, well, the title just says it all. This is published in the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, How Christians Reconciled Their Personal Political Views and the Teachings of Their Faith, Projection as a Means of Dissonance Reduction. Hmm. Most people are probably familiar with the cognitive dissonance theory where you have ideas that just don't gel together and you have to somehow make them fit by changing one to you know mess with the other. But this study looked at things like people's political liberalism or conservatism and how those people interpreted the teachings of Jesus. Um, so, for example, it's probably not a surprise that, that liberals tend to value things that are more community-based aspects like uh, softened immigration laws mm-hmm. or higher taxes on rich people. Uh, the authors of the study, by the way, called those fellowship issues, issues of, you know, let's all be nice and sing kumbaya, whereas conservatives tend to value issues that are more personal moral issues, so obviously abortion restrictions and gay marriage restrictions. And, and what- guns. Let us keep our guns. Didn't look at guns in this one, but yes. Mm. So the um, that would be one in general. But what the uh, what the authors did was that they had people uh, who had rated themselves on liberalism conservatism dimensions, and then they had them go through and then say what their position was on these issues, and then what Jesus' position was on these issues. Of course, of course, their belief is most likely. I feel this way because. Jesus's views inform this. That's how most people say yeah. that. You know, why do I think this way? Is because that's what God says, and then they find a passage to back it up, or you mm-hmm. know, here's what the church teaches. But what they did in the study with those have people rate themselves, their view on the issue, and what they think uh, Jesus' views on the issues was. And some of this was, you know, on one level, not terribly surprising in that liberals somehow acknowledge that overall Jesus might be somewhat more conservative than them, hmm. or that conservatives argue that Jesus might be more. Uh, slightly more liberal than them, but on the issues that they thought were core, the ones that I just mentioned, fellowship yeah. is core for liberals, and then uh, personal moral issues are core for conservatives. Uh, they thought that Jesus, each group, liberals and conservatives, thought that Jesus was more in line with the views than they themselves are. So, so Jesus is even more extreme on abortion than they are. If you're conservative, are, if you're you think conservative. that Jesus is even more against abortion or even more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in favor like, against I'm really against it, but Jesus is really, really against yes. it. Yes. Uh, or if you're a liberal, you think that Jesus is even more soft on immigration and, uh, you know, accepting him even more on pro-raising mm-hmm. taxes for the wealthy people. We all fall short of the glory of God's extreme politics. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and say, so, but they found that the more there are you know, obviously within a subset of people, there are people whose religious views are more key to who they are, and the more co- uh, people thought that their religious or said that their religious views were core to their, you know, these were core elements to them, the more they did that. So, uh, I, you know, I'll just the way that the authors stated beautifully uh, in explaining these things was that. How did survey re- respondents rationalize the discrepancy between their own political views and the teachings of the gospel? As predicted, both liberals and conservative Christians did so in part by projecting their own views onto Jesus in a way that reduced such discrepancy. So, you know, in this case, we see in action that uh, if you would, you know, if you, you would have a person feel that even though their views might, might be at odds, they would probably even say that that's not core to the religious teachings. Mm-hmm. That is, if I had a conservative mm-hmm. and said, you know, but Jesus is about 
equality for the poor or, you know, social equality and being forgiving of people, they would, a conservative would probably argue that that, in fact, is not a core teaching of Jesus. What's really the core is the moral issues. Yeah, he said something about it, but it wasn't the most important thing he had to talk about. Which I, you know, which we can't, obviously, in this show, we can't help acknowledging Jesus never said anything about abortion or gay marriage, right, right. Or, but, yeah. but yet conservatives hmm. feel that that somehow is core to his teachings. Well, it was so, I mean, he didn't even need to say it. Maybe they think that it was, yes, that Paul is speaking as a mouthpiece or of Jesus or something like that. it's just irony that he didn't say it. So the idea is they're overreaching and overattributing these ideas because conservatives really are presented with dissonance by social justice pass- passages. Uh, yeah, so as we know from this myth theory, I've talked about this in the past, is that if you are confronted with uh, – uh, you have two choices, either give up your views and just crumbles – if you're painting in a corner, assert them with even more right. vigor so that you yeah, could say no, okay. no, no. And essentially you circle the wagons cognitively. In this case, right. what you would say is that, yes, they might acknowledge on some level that there are teachings that are incompatible with their emphasis of what Jesus thinks. But the way they resolve that is just to emphasize even more mm-hmm. and say, no, 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 he really thought these things, not those things. He didn't care about – yeah, he might have said them, but he didn't really care about those things. To some extent, you could see that Christian conservatives, their defense of things like – a, you know, abortion and gay marriage or whatever being projected onto Jesus is an element. There's an element of dissonance reduction in right. that. He must have said those things because uh, I really, really care about them. Mm-hmm. And why right. would I care about them if he didn't say them? Mm-hmm. And and the same with liberals. So that you know, there there are passages in the Bible too that are not about social justice or they have like you guys just talked about some nasty bits there. Liberals probably have to find a way to reduce that dissonance as well. It's got to be nice to have infallible moral intuitions like that. Yeah. <laughs> really, really convenient. Yeah, and just as an, as a, a maybe a not specifically religious example, uh, but it works the same way in a political theater. Uh, I, I um, there was a, a study that came out that's really cool. Uh, Recently, that was by the lead author's name was Frenda, but the title is "False Memories of Fabricated Political Events." That caught my eye in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology. And what the authors did here is is that they presented subjects with actual photos of political figures like Bush and Obama. Some of them were real, Mm -hmm. and some of them they photoshopped in things that were um, that would appeal to somebody's ideological nature. So, for example, they had a picture of Obama shaking hands with a diplomat, and they put. Iran's president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, mm-hmm. which he never did. Right. Obama never shook his hand. Uh, but you could see why a conservative would want to say that Obama did or yeah. that he was playing right. Twister with whatever. Uh, and then you have Bush during Katrina. There was accusations that you might recall he was sort of checked out and absent. Accusations they, of that? Yes. Yeah, he was on okay. vacation. But they did is they, they took a photo of him in a pickup on vacation and then they photoshopped Roger Clemens, the baseball guy, in there and his, to I, show I, that I he's just palling around and not I taking did. things seriously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what they found is, is that when they asked people about their memories about these things, people tended to, uh, again, perhaps not surprisingly, fabricate politi- uh, memories that were false in some cases, but that were in line with their political views. So mm-hmm. liberals were more likely to say that that actually happened with Bush, with Clemens in the pickup, right. and conservatives were more likely to say that Obama shook Ahmadina John's hand. Mm-hmm. So they were actually misrecalling them and saying these photos, oh, yes, I remember when that happened, yeah. when in fact it Not just, happen. oh, wow, thanks for telling me that, yeah. but actually 
creating yeah, memory oh, yeah, recall for that. themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's, our listeners might have heard of there's other studies of false memories where you can implant yeah. and if you suggest to somebody, do you remember that time you blah, blah, blah. And you people, were abused. Yeah, you were, yeah. Well, even mundane things yeah. like when you, you know, and people incorporate that into their memory where they actually start to elaborate on details like, oh, yes, and it was, I remember the day because blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It was, which is kind of scary because that suggests – The you author's know, name on that was Loftus. Yes, right? Elizabeth Loftus from mm. uh, I think University of Washington is – she's been involved with some of those false memory cases where, mm. where she experimentally induces these things, mm. harmless ones. Um, but it shows – Unless that, you're on a jury. Yes. Well, <laughs> That's part of her point. It's, yeah. it's scary because when you realize about about things when, when – you t- or even like you've probably had the experience of this too. When somebody tells you a story and then you tell it enough to where you insert yourself yeah. into the story mm-hmm. where it yeah. happens to yeah. you and details can get filled into where you can't really tell the difference. They did that on uh, This American Life, I think. Oh, with, and uh, Robert Crowe. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Did I say something? No, where it was, it was a story that his his wife had told, but then a couple of years later, he's telling the story that it was him who was there and he was never actually right. there. And so it, and it's only when you're confronted with things when they say you couldn't possibly have been there. We told you about it. And, yeah. and, and But what's scary is that you fill in, again, the, the details, that you start to fill in things yeah. that, that, that make it incorporate it part of your memory. Yeah. So, you know, this it's, it happens in obviously in legal context. It's really serious. But even in like these contexts that are political or religious, people do the same thing. They yeah. fill in gaps. Well, you had false memory stuff on scriptures, right? Like uh, yeah. doesn't the Bible – didn't Jesus say God helps those who help themselves? Yeah. And, I, mm-hmm. A few years back, I did an episode on that with one of my text recall things where people mm-hmm. m- misremembered religious texts right. in the direction of, again, if you were like say more yeah. fundamentalist, you remember the more judgmental passages. And, and you gotta you got to think all that stuff feeds back into each other. If, if, we're, yeah. if we're both making Jesus out to be more extreme versions of our own views and we're misremembering remembering scriptures to support it, you know. I mean, the overall message of this is these, these cognitive errors, everybody engages in them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We get so sick of people just cherry-picking the parts of their Bible that support their views or not, but to some degree, the human brain is just loaded in that direction anyway. It happens, you know, political arguments. People look at the Constitution and pick the parts that they like, and they ignore the other ones. You know, the atheists tend to focus on the separation of church and state and not the free expression clause, right. whereas religious yep. people do the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it happens all the time that we tend to – that we acknowledge – Push to the wall. We acknowledge that they might, there might be some aspects that don't support our position. We just choose to say, but the other parts are more meaningful. But this is the more important this, part. This yeah. is the core message. Mm-hmm. So, what do we do to fix these problems? I'm, I'm almost beginning. Brain to think, surgery. Yeah, I'm almost well. <laughs> other than other than nanobots, which we is have, the answer to everything. I found a company named Lacune that will erase memories that are unpleasant. <laughs> nice reference. Is this? Any risk of brain damage? Well, technically speaking, <laughs> the procedure is brain damage, but no more than on par with a night of heavy drinking. One of my favorite films. I love it. One of, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what, do just, you, yeah. what do you do about it? I, I mean, on a practical level, it's unavoidable. But so, I guess the the, the answer, it seems glib, but the, the the answer would be have things that can hold your feet to the fire. Yeah, like yeah. This, that's what know, it has to be. To be yeah. aware of the fact that you're doing that, and and you know, be aware of the fact that when you are pushed, feel pushed in a corner that you will use dissonance reduction. Yeah, engage in dialogue with the other side to keep us honest. Yeah. I just think like listening to this stuff as an educator, I, 
I keep on thinking my primary job is to convince the students to never have confidence in anything they believe uh-huh. ever. If you're an educator. Right. Because I don't want to do that either. If I just present people with information, they'll absorb the information and change their views. Well, that's not going to happen. Right. right. It's not going to happen right. like that. But at the same time, if we do if we do preach this kind of uh, this deeply self critical attitude that I think all is required of us morally, knowing all this information about cognitive biases, then we get the whole Dunning Kruger effect, where all of One us of who take effect. the time to research and study and really know these issues. We're all these mealy mouthed. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to support or defend anything. It's all gray area. <laughs> well, and then every jackass who's just shooting from the hip thinks they're, you know, they have, have all the influence. They have the rhetorical yeah. boost that, of their own self confidence. One thing that has been useful in convincing other people to give up their positions is if you allow them to affirm some aspect of their identity right. in general. So we've talked about this maybe a little bit in other experiments before, but so, so like the effects of like a, a threat to your self esteem, like this, so, if you show. If you shove a conservative's face in the Bible and say, "Look, he doesn't say anything about gays or whatever," he, he wants equal, ta- you know, equal social justice. If you allow them in general to affirm an aspect of their identity, like, "But religion can give meaning to people's lives," and uh, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. arguing against this. Or if you allow the, the the super patriot to say the Constitution is very important to us and our founding fathers were very wise. If you allow them to affirm some aspect of their general worldview and then slip in the but look, this specific thing, it's just wrong. They accept it more. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Everything, as, everything goes back into terror management theory. It or, does. <laughs> or uncertainty management theory or yeah. uh, any of those things that have yeah. that. Their core element is you derive self-esteem from your worldview. I, and yeah. if somebody chips away at your worldview or takes an axe to it, mm-hmm. you're going to defend it and you're going to deny that person. But if you're allowed to kind of maintain some aspects of your world, your self-esteem in other ways, then you're more open to changing certain aspects of it. When I was talking to the Phelps people at uh, at Reason Rally, I, I tried a similar attack and I think some of the other atheists around me looked at me as a total wimp. But yeah, I, I was doing – I was trying to – I was talking to this gentleman uh, who was off by the sidelines. And From clearly, Westboro Baptist. Clearly, yeah, yeah. Clearly didn't want to be there. Uh, he's holding the God hates fags sign, but he didn't want to be there. And he made this point to me. Uh, he said, you know, I'm out here because this is God's word. It's not like I like being unpopular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like I, I, I know uh, I feel bad and I feel nervous telling people I think homosexuality is wrong because I know they're going to judge me. And uh, yeah, and I basically affirm that as I tried to do the whole, you know, I really respect the fact that you're willing to take a culturally uncomfortable position if you think it's true. You wuss. My (laughs) – I just think you have misunderstood the situation, right? And I don't know if that does any good, but maybe – Maybe well, that kind as of far as effective a, communication a better goes, lead it into, does. Uh, yeah, it sure makes the dialogue more pleasant. Than saying yep. you're a creep That's and, true. Yeah, and uh, so ending if your the goal discussion is, there. I think sometimes there's the tendency to want to go for the jugular and, and hit him with all these arguments and then expect them to go, you know, to just crumble. But, uh, but if you're really interested in effective communication, like Dave said, you know, yeah. if that's your goal, yeah. uh, that, that sometimes to hold back a bit, allow them to maintain some self-esteem in general with the sort of a, some aspects of their worldview and just target one thing at a time, mm-hmm. baby yeah. steps. Yeah. Amen. Okay. Uh, let's move on to polyatheism. Mm-hmm. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I have a confession to make. What is it? I am an atheist. It, in point of fact, as a student of mythology, I like to call myself a polyatheist because I think it's only right to acknowledge the myriad gods and goddesses worshipped across space and time, each of which is very much worthy of not believing in. But I have to confess, I sometimes wish that weren't the case. There are times when I find myself wishing I did believe in a god or gods, usually just to yell at them or say to them, it's like you're not even there, man. (laughs) But there are times when I deeply and sincerely wish there were a god I could turn to. One such time was December 14th of 2012, as I watched news footage of terrified, sobbing children being ushered out of their school in Newtown, Connecticut. I wished more than anything in the world that there were a god who could have protected the staff and students at Sandy Hook Elementary and at every other elementary, middle, and high school in the world, and especially and selfishly at my own children's schools. But my wish wasn't for the god of the Bible. I do fully recognize and acknowledge that many of those at Sandy Hook believed in may have found comfort in and may even have been inspired to the unfathomable acts of heroism committed on that day. But I do not care for the God of the Bible. I find his Ten Commandments incredibly selfish, including multiple laws about how God should be worshipped, but not a single thought to the protection of those who we need to protect. Even the New Testament, with a kinder, gentler Jesus than the wrathful God who advocates executing disrespectful children in the Old Testament, suggests that really the best thing about children is their ability to believe things that they're told without asking questions. The God of the Bible is not the God I'd like to depend on to keep my children safe. Instead, the God I wish would have been keeping watch over the children of Newtown along with my own children is the Egyptian god Bess. Bess or Bisu or Aha is an unusual god even by Egyptian standards. While most Egyptian gods are tall and lanky with the occasional regal and or terrifying animal head, Bess is squat, adorable, and downright silly looking. With his dwarven frame, wide face, broad grin, and waggling tongue, Bess certainly stands out amongst the pantheon. So much so, in fact, that many scholars have concluded he was probably a later import from Nubia, but that's probably not actually the case. There's evidence of the worship of Bess dating as far back as the Old Kingdom, which means that Bess is Egyptian in origin and may be as old or older than the Sphinx or even the Great Pyramid of Khufu. He began as a regional god but eventually became one of the most popular gods in ancient Egypt and was even worshipped by many Roman soldiers. So why is this little gnome of a god the one I'd like to turn to to guard us from tragedy? Despite his odd appearance, Bess was a hugely important protector god. One of the things that endears him most to me uh, is the fact that Bess did not have any priests or temples. Instead, he was a household god whose job it was to protect the home from mischief and danger. Well, he was also a patron of dancers, entertainers, and uh, women. His most important job was protecting children. 
He was regularly featured in the birthing houses so that he could protect children even before birth, as well as taking care of their mothers, which, to a child, taking care of their mother is about the most important thing anyone can do. His comic appearance made him kid-friendly, and he would do silly dances with his tongue hanging out to drive away the forces of evil and entertain the children. Very few things in this world will make a child feel safer than the sound of their own laughter. And Bess was the one to evoke it. There's something so sweet, so endearing, and so comforting about an impish defender of children who does funny dances rather than a muscle-bound superhero stoically standing sentry over their beds. Maybe more than any other god, I wish Bess were real. I wish... There were a God whose single most important job was to watch out for our kids. I wish Bess had been standing at the door of Sandy Hook Elementary doing his silly little dance to ward off misfortune. But he wasn't. And he won't be putting on any shows at my kids' schools either. And I'll be honest with you, that bothers me. And really, the only thing that comforts me is knowing that there's a lot better than Bess. There are people like the principal at Sandy Hook who gave her own life attempting to save the students. There are the teachers who put themselves between a madman and a room full of children. There's the bus driver who took a bullet saving a bus full of children in Alabama. There are the parents in war-torn countries and just down the street who makes so many different sacrifices each day to keep their kids safe and happy. There are the teachers who make their students feel safe, whether it's from bullying or from a bullet. These people are so much more important than Bess or any other God imagined to give us a false sense of security. As adorable and lovable as Bess is, these are people I can truly rely on to keep my kids safe. These are people I can believe in. Unlike Bess, who's just one more God worth not believing in. Uh, speaking of uh, the tragedy at Sandy Hook, we have, and this makes it sound all um, uh, very unserious, but we're putting him on, uh, putting on our shit list um, a pastor who not one of these pastors who like after every tragedy comes out and blames uh, any killing or hurricane or terrorist act on the gays and the atheists and the teaching of evolution and all of that. Um, but Pastor Rob Morris uh, of Newtown's Christ the King Lutheran Church, who actually took part in an interfaith event following the shooting um, at Sandy Hook, He's making it onto our shit list. Why? Because he's apologizing for having participated in this interfaith prayer vigil for the 26 children and adults killed at Newtown. You could say he migrated from my props to a ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of feel bad, the unqualified, because he's... He started props, then he ended shit. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, as much as we're obviously for the separation of church and state and all of that... Um, Events like this uh, are important, and they do help a community that is dealing with a, a unbelievable 
tragedy. Although they could have had a humanist uh, person uh, at that. It, it would have been great if would they had representatives of you know um, every different philosophical and religious group. But um, uh, Rob Morris, uh, Lutheran pastor, gave the closing benediction at the interfaith event, and uh, he was admonished for having done this by the president of the Lutheran. Church uh, Missouri Synod, Pastor Matthew Harrison, who wrote a letter to church members saying that, and this is coming from an article from um, U.S. News, uh, he wrote an article uh, requesting an apology from Morris for his participation, um, saying, quote, there's sometimes a real tension between wanting to bear witness to Christ and at the same time avoiding situations which may give the impression that our differences with respect to who God is, who Jesus is, how he deals with us, and how we get to heaven really don't matter in the end, Harris wrote. There, are, there will be times in this crazy world when for what we believe are all the right reasons, we may step over the scriptural line, end quote. So essentially, uh, Lutherans don't believe in in taking part in worship well, with Lutheran Church Missouri, well, Missouri Synod. Oh, Missouri, Missouri Synod. Synod. Thank yeah. you. Whole different. It's deal. in there. It's in their chart. If you look at the rule book, some some bloggers have posted this. So if you look at their thing, mm-hmm. it actually he uh, the pastor was out of line with the charter of the group itself, which says right. that you can't do activities that would cause people essentially to cause people to become confused about ecumenical issues. Right. Right. To say yeah. that everything is all good and it's yes. all equal. You we we cannot that. we cannot for a moment allow people to think that we can get along with other religious groups. Except, mm. guess where the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod did team up with Mormons, Jews, some Mormon and some Jewish groups, and some other to elect Romney. To, no, no, no. <laughs> in their opposition, the brief they filed for against Prop Eight in California. Oh, of course. Oh. So California Prop Eight, you might remember some religious groups came out like the, there was a big hoo ha about the Catholics and the Mormons spending money, but other yeah. groups piled on and and collaborated on legal, you know, briefs to say don't approve this. Third amount. And yes. guess yes, and guess who was among those groups? Apparently, the LCMS, uh. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, doesn't have a problem with doing ecumenical. Pylons when it's to oppose when the gays. When it's to oppose the gays, but but whereas to help a grieving community. Well, that, sir, well, that would be too confusing. That the impression that these other religions and these children are okay. You guys might remember that this happened before after 9-11. After 9-11, I was the just going to say that. Name, I'm blanking David Benke. Well, Benke, and yes. this guy, too, this, Benke, this, yes. identical, Benke, I'm sorry. this identical individual was also – this is was not the, the first time he nope. was disciplined. The other time was 9-11, which is why I say – I think it's so transparently obvious that he's trying to keep his job here yeah. that he really does believe in reaching out to these communities and, yeah. well, and in the probably pod- will continue to violate this policy but, in the future. Um, Benneke was a Lutheran pastor who took part in interfaith uh, vigil on uh, uh, September uh, – like uh, two weeks after September 11th. And he was admonished by um, I believe the same uh, Matthew Harrison. Um, and he refused to apologize for having done it. He did not say, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have, you know, done my part to help a grieving nation. And he was reinstated in 2003. Oh. Um, well, it's not like the Lutheran Church has a founder that ever did things like put his job <laughs> at risk by, by sticking with his theological principles and like nailing them to the door. Um. Oh, wait. <laughs> but this guy, this, uh, Rob Morris in Newtown, um, has apologized. Um, he wrote that it was not his intent to endorse, quote, false teachings 
and apologized to those who believed he had. Quote, I did not believe my participation to be an act of joint worship, but one of mercy and care to a community shocked and grieving in unspeakably horrific event. And that's where he should stop. Mm. He yeah. should say, look, I didn't do anything wrong here. I, this was not joint worship. This was right. me trying to do the right, right. thing. But Sorry instead, if you interpreted it wrong. Yep. He said, goes on to say, quote, I apologize where I have caused offense by pushing Christian freedom too far, uh, and I request you charitably receive my apology. Even that answer. Again, I'm, he should have stood up for this. Yeah. You know, not disagreeing. He deserves to mm-hmm. be on the shit list. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even that, even that response is worded in such a way, pushing Christian freedom too far. Yeah. You know, you know, people are going to take that in and understand exactly what he's saying, which is, how dare you? Right. <laughs> we should be doing this. But, but he didn't have the, the guts to actually, yeah. to yeah. do it. And, the, and, I guess the, the we as Christians have the freedom to do this. Me yeah. as a L- Missouri Synod Lutheran is being yeah. kept shackled by these rules. I, I think the worst offender is the uh, uh, pastor Matthew Harrison, the yeah. president of the Definitely. Missouri yeah. uh, Church or uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. But this uh, this Rob Morris um, truly disappointing. Well, maybe in the future we'll have to talk about our own skeptical movements, own versions of these. What groups will cooperate with which? Yeah. Do we want to keep uh, scientific skepticism and religious skepticism pure? Do we keep what the common, two separate? What common cause do too. we make with liberal believers? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's great for us to stand back and watch and mock the the different sectarian feuds that go on, but. Uh, you know, we have a lot of baggage in our own movement too yeah. that needs Brothers, to be addressed. We should be striving together, not with the we people's front of Judea. We are striving together. <laughs> people's front of Judea splitters. Um, but I think that's going to do it for us this time. That's certainly an issue we'll be talking about in the future. And please let us know what you think about that issue and anything else by writing to us at doubtcast at gmail dot com. Um, I want to quick do a shout out here to a young man named uh, Xavier, uh, 16 years old, who wrote to us just the other day to say that um, the podcast has been a, a real help to him. And um, we obviously don't do shout outs to everyone we get emails from. In fact, um, we're not even very good at responding to all of the emails we get all the time. But uh, especially when we hear from our younger listeners, it really – it means a lot to me. Um, I don't know about you guys, but it definitely – It means nothing um, to me, Dave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> just to make that clear. Yeah, was that the Dave subtext? And, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> the only one it means? No, I'm just saying it's especially moving to of me. Um, yes. Yeah. And I have to say, Xavier, you sound like a good kid. I've got a daughter who's about to turn 16 and I'm just uh, – uh, I want to get my kids married off early so I don't have to worry about them <laughs> you, dating. You hear, you hear so, that, girls? <laughs> He's going to trade you I, like so much chattel. Oh, they know that. At the first uh, – Not chattel for a flock of goats. <laughs> preferably into lesbian relationships, but so far none of them have really uh, shown a predilect. <laughs> Not that I'm – you know, I don't love them less, but it, it hurts great, a little. That's great, honey, but if you considered girls? <laughs> <laughs> you, you say that like it's a joke. I say that oh, every day. <laughs> I know, you guys. I know it's not a joke. <laughs> but uh, – so anyway, thanks to Xavier and all of our young listeners out there. Please uh, send us uh, an email and let us know how you found the show and let us know that you're out there. Doubtcast at gmail.com, uh, freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts or doubtcast.org. 
um, hey, there are some major uh, conventions coming up this year featuring skeptical-type talks. We have never been to any of those conventions as a podcast. Wouldn't it be fun if we did that sometime? Well, how could we afford that, though? Well, that's the thing, <laughs> is um, our, our listeners in the past have been very, very generous to us, um, overwhelmingly generous, actually. Um, and I guess we're asking for you to um, maybe try to do that again because we are hoping – we don't have any uh, – um, we can't announce any official plans yet. But we are hoping um, in theory if Luke will behave um, – <laughs> Uh, to get everyone out to one or more conventions this year. But in order to do that, because we are all... And hopefully take part in them. Yeah, and hopefully take part in them. Yeah, I mean, we can go and, and drink and so forth, but hopefully take part in uh, um, some of these conferences. And we would love it if you could go to doubtcast.org and hit the donate button and um, uh, help get us to one of these conventions. We'll be talking about this again uh, soon with details about where and when we're going and what our, our fundraising goals are for that. Um, but, you know, uh, thank you to those of you who have given in the past. And um, if you can give now, that would sure be great because we'd like to get a chance to spread the gospel of doubt at, uh, at a convention sometime this year. So... In the meantime, uh, we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.